0: Welcome to this episode of Mike's Notes. This episode is going to be the first in an experiment uh, where we go ahead and try to provide just one podcast a week and highlight some things that I've learned or some things that are notable or some things that are interesting. Uh, Always open to feedback on these sorts of experiments. So if you like this format, let me know. If you don't like it, let me know. And we can go back to the more structured... Single episode focusing on a single source or a single idea. One. I'm not sure how or when I got started on the Adam Carolla podcast, but I usually listen to a couple minutes of each one, and sometimes they're good and sometimes they're not. And this podcast with Judd Apatow was pretty good. It was funny, it talked about uh, current issues, and they talked about the Super Bowl. And Apatow went on to explain loss aversion without mentioning loss aversion. If you're not familiar, loss aversion is the idea that losses hurt more than gains. The figure that most people give is that losses hurt two and a half times as much as gains. And that's just sort of a rule of thumb to use when you go ahead and you do academic studies. Like when you offer people a chance to win $10.00. They're, not, they're going to feel wins of $10, about the same as they feel of losses of $25. And Apatow goes ahead and explains this in terms of Super Bowl bets. This is what he told Adam Carolla. I never like gambling because uh, I don't get that much pleasure from winning. Oh. And I get an enormous amount of pain from losing. And it doesn't even matter if it's like $5. Like, there's too much suffering versus too little joy. We can take the idea of loss aversion past academic studies, and we can take it past whether or not you want to gamble on the Super Bowl, and we can look at cultural and organizational changes as a situation where loss aversion occurs. In a talk at the Santa Fe Institute, Daniel Kahneman and Michael Mobison speak about this as it relates to organizational changes, where if you come up with a new policy or a new way of doing something or you're going to change someone's job responsibilities, then there may be loss aversion in this situation. And they focus on the idea of using sabermetrics in baseball. And as that switch occurred, it wasn't just a switch from using scouting to using a more statistical-based approach. But there were people that also had career capital in the scouting situation. And so they were going to feel losses as it related to their career, their work the things that they've spent so much time doing. On the other side, we can use the disconnect of a career to avoid loss aversion. And in that same conversation, Mobison and Kahneman point out that uh, financial advisors can have this effect. Mobison says that the research shows that when financial advisors make decisions on behalf of someone, on behalf of an uh, principal, and when they act as the agent, they can avoid situations like loss aversion and the endowment effect, where you tend to overvalue something you have, and you overvalue it just because you have it. So loss aversion is this human quirk, this human tendency, and it can be used positively, and it can be used negatively. Two. Kara Swisher did an excellent podcast with Ezra Klein. For some reason, Swisher seems to be on the podcast tour right now. I'm not sure if there's something she's promoting or what the reason is, but I appreciate it because Swisher is someone who has a lot of interesting opinions, and while I don't necessarily agree with her on some of the things she says. She always makes a good case. She always focuses on facts, and she always relies on experience, and she tends to do all the things we talk about when we mention arguing well on this podcast. One of the things Swisher talked about with Klein was the importance of having relationships, and they were speaking about this in the context of reporters and how reporters should always be talking to people even if they're not writing a story about someone because you don't want to be the reporter who only calls when there's something important to talk about and you need information for your job. This is what Swisher says, quote, I try to reach out and ask them questions because most reporters don't develop relationships with people. I'm not talking friendships because most of these people are not my friends. And then Swisher goes on to say, I think people appreciate having a relationship because what a lot of people do is call when something happens and then tell me everything, end quote. This value of relationships it wasn't something I really appreciated until I started seeing it come up more and more in my writings. The catalyst for this viewing of relationships was a book called Tribes by Sebastian Younger. And in that book, Younger talks about the value of living in a community and a tribe and having these relationships. In Phil Jackson's book, Eleven Rings, he writes about this too. He tries to create a synergistic atmosphere where the whole is greater than the sum of its parts. Lastly, I saw this evidence in a project I've been working on about Sam Hinkey. Sam Hinkie was the general manager of the Philadelphia 76ers for three years, and he instituted this idea. They call it the process, where the best way to become a great NBA team, if that's what your goal is, is to have great NBA players. And the best way to have great NBA players is to draft them. And the best way to draft them is to be really bad so you can have a high draft pick. And using that reasoning, Hinkie's team... Collected one of the worst records in the league over the time he was there. And some people didn't like it. They called it anti competitive basketball. Bill Simmons calls it tankapalooza when he references it. And on the one hand, it doesn't seem to be the right way to go about it. But on the other hand, it's exactly the right way if your goal is to be a great team and then you have to have great players. In my study of Pinky's letter and some of his interviews, I think he had a really good idea. I think this way of going about things tends to work most of the time. It probably works as much as anything else works in a league that's as competitive as the NBA, in part because a lot of other people aren't doing it. As Charlie Ellis says, it's really easy to succeed if you don't have much competition or if you have competition that's not very good. And Hinky 76ers didn't have a lot of competition for this kind of a strategy. So I think what he was doing was good. But one shortcoming in his system was that he didn't maintain the right relationships. In an interview with Zach Lowe, Lowe asked him why he was on the podcast. Hinky had been a very private person. He had been someone that didn't interact a lot with the media. He was kind of standoffish. In some ways, he reminded me of Bill Belichick. And Hinky says that he needs to get out and not let the vacuum fill up with stories where he doesn't get to drive the narrative. That's exactly what happened because Hinky didn't have these relationships. He wasn't communicating to people. He wasn't talking about what was going on behind the scenes and the value of it and the, and the reasons why his team was doing it rather than taking another course. That's what relationships can do is relationships can fill the vacuum. People want to know a story. They want an explanation. It doesn't have to be perfect. It doesn't have to satisfy what they want, but it can't be zero. You can't let a vacuum create because a vacuum will be filled up by something. And if it's not the something that you want, it'll probably be something that's either neutral or negative to what you're trying to do building relationships, having a community, working in a tribe, really has some powerful effects. Three. In an unlikely duo for a podcast, Neil deGrasse Tyson joined Lance Armstrong. And for whatever you think about Lance Armstrong, his podcast is actually pretty good. I was a huge Armstrong fan during the Strong Yellow Bracelet days, and I read his book, and I internalized it, and I believed a lot of what he said, and then I thought he was a jerk at best after all of the doping and his comments about not doping truths came out. But everyone is complicated, and that domain, Lance Armstrong's podcast, is something that I find value in. That's something I'm trying to do more of, is to realize it. People are complicated, and no one's a saint, and there's good things I can learn from everyone. And what I can learn from Armstrong is what he has to say with his podcast guests. And DeGrasse Tyson was no disappointment. I I enjoy the things he says. I enjoy the way he says them. Physics and astronomy is always something that I tend to find interesting, so... All of those things were going for me as I went in. And then DeGrasse Tyson said this, quote, The universe does not write different textbooks for itself, end quote. What a great line to explain multidisciplinary thinking. The universe does not write different textbooks for itself. All of the subjects and all the different subject textbooks and all the different subject professors and all of the different subject classrooms that are walled off and separate There's no separate in the world. When we talk about the ways people act, there's so many domains that are involved in that. There's economics, there's behavioral economics, there's incentives, there's psychology, there's biochemistry. Just the mood that you're in because of the chemicals that are flowing through your body affects how people act. Those are all things we should keep in mind. Here's my trick for this. I learned this from my podcast with Dr. Sanjay Bakshi. And he said, you have to think, Part of the reason thinking. You have to use part of the reason explanations to solve for problems. There's no problem, there's few problems that have a simple, straight clear-cut answer. Most problems are part of the reason-thinking problems, where you say, well, why does that happen? Well, part of the reason is this, part of the reason is this, and part of the reason is this. And the key is to get to a point where you have sort of an an 80-20 effect, where you have two or three good reasons that carry most of the weight. There's two or three good reasons for a lot of things that happen in life. And if you can get to those things, if you can understand the part of the reason-thinking, and you can understand the causes that have the largest effects on the situation you're looking at, you'll probably have better success with finding your answers. And DeGrasse Tyson reminds us that you might have to look in different areas to find different solutions. Like, if you have a marketing problem, maybe part of it is marketing, but maybe part of it is sales. Maybe part of it is that your product stinks and you're trying to market something that just isn't very good. If you have a relationship problem, maybe Part of the reason you have a relationship problem is that the other person doesn't trust you. And maybe part of the reason is that you aren't communicating your feelings well. And maybe part of the reason is that there's extra stress from a new diet or a new job or a new exercise program or a new commute or some other thing. And we need to get to the part of the reasons. One example from my own life that totally amazed me was part of the reason thinking that explained why my back hurt and my why my hips hurt. I thought that I just wasn't doing a certain stretch the right way, but it turned out it was a whole series of tightness in my different muscles and joints and ligaments throughout my lower body, and the effect was the hips. So while it was my hips that had the effect, that was my hips were where the pain was, the cause was many different things. There were many parts of the reason for that effect. And if we can get to this thinking, if we can remember that life isn't divided up like textbooks or classrooms or different academic buildings on campuses, I think that'll lead us to a better way to solve problems. Four. Another person making the podcast rounds is Gary Tobbs, who has a new book out. Uh, this time it's about sugar. And his podcasts are all pretty good. There's some people who are really great interviewers and there's some people who are really great interviewees. And when these two people match up, then the interview is really great. And so it's really an interaction. Like we just said, it's part of the reason there's a great interview. And Tobes is, he's pretty good as an interviewee, but, but he's not great. There's just a narrative flow from him that is different than a lot of the other interviewers. And interviewees that I listen to. But in his book about sugar, he makes the case that sugar is bad for you because it influences hormones like insulin. And this is the reason that people can become overweight and obese. And this is the reason that people can suffer diseases. And Tobbs readily admits that he may not be correct, but he thinks he is. I mean, he's, he thinks he is so much so that he's written books on it and he's built a large career around it. And what struck me most about Taubes' ideas is that you can follow them and even if he's totally wrong, there's almost no downside to it. This is something else that I've been thinking about because I've been watching the Michael Greger YouTube videos. Greger is the author of the book How Not to Die. He's a practicing physician and he runs a website called nutritionfacts.org. And between Greger and Taubes, Between these comments on vegetarianism and sugar consumption, I've started to think about ideas that are asymmetrical. That is, ideas where if things go wrong, if the person that I'm listening to is completely and 100% incorrect, there's almost no downside. If I stop eating meat and that's wrong, the downside from that is really low. If I stop eating sugar and it turns out sugar isn't bad for you at all, the downside to that is really low. But then on the other side, if these people that I'm listening to are right, then the upside is huge. If the research that Gregor cites about diseases and health and longevity and a healthy longevity where you live out the last years of your life in a positive and vibrant state, that's a huge payoff for not eating meat. If Taubes is right about sugar, that's a huge payoff to not suffering some of the diseases like type 2 diabetes. Investor Monish Pabrai mentioned this in a similar way in a podcast he did. He was saying that when he started his fund, when he started to make investments after he had sold the startup, he basically took everything that Charlie Munger and Warren Buffett did and copied it. He even gave his lawyers and his accountants reference material written by them and about them and he said this is how I want it set up. This is the structure that I want. I don't know why I want things this way but these are two people who I think they really know what they're doing and I'm just going to follow what they say blindly. And for Pabri, I think it was a similar situation where it was an asymmetrical return. If Buffett and Munger were right about the processes and the structure of an investment fund, then the payoffs for Pabri could be huge. And if they were totally wrong, the downside would be very little. For example, Buffett and Munger don't have research analysts. They don't have people who are divided into sectors telling them what's the best consumer goods company to buy and what's the best railroad company to invest in. They want, what Buffett and Munger want, is they want to know the best investment from the entire schism, the entire landscape of investment options. And that's what Pabrai wants too. He took this idea of not hiring an analyst from Buffett and Munger, and it worked out really well. There was a huge upside to it, and there was very little downside. In fact, it turns out there was no downside for Pabrai, and he still doesn't use an analyst. Another example of this is reading books. Books, as I've said many times before, are incredibly valuable because of the life-changing impact they can have on you. Like a pendulum that swings back and forth, I go back and forth on whether or not I should have social media installed on my phone. Currently, I don't have any apps, but I am logged in via the browser. And I've settled on this because I know that there's value in social media. I know that connecting with people and talking with people on Twitter is something that I enjoy, and it's something that makes me smarter, and it's something that makes me think about things in new ways. So there's there's value to that. But I also know that checking it constantly, checking it nonstop, always logging into Facebook isn't good. And I know this because books are asymmetrical and social media is not. Social media gives me something, but it gives me like a steady state of something. It's almost like a a drip where you have a certain reward every so often. It's never huge, it's never like bad, it's just sort of bleh. It is what it is. But books have a chance to introduce you to an idea that totally changes the way you think about something. And what does it cost for a book. A book's cost is not the money you spend on a book. That is 100%. That is 99% trivial in the grand scheme of things, especially when you compare it to the ideas that you'll have forever and that can influence you. The real cost to a book is time and time spent reading a book, which, which you know, it can be three, seven, nine, twenty-five 25 hours to read a, a really thick book. That's the cost to a book, but there's lots of places that time can come from. If you're questioning your time management. If you want to get more out of your time, there's two books that had a big effect on me. One is 168 Hours by Laura Vanderkam, and the other is Invest Your Time Like Money by Elizabeth Grace Saunders. The conclusion of both of those books is that you have more time than you realize. As Seneca said Quote, it's not that we have a short time to live, but that we waste a lot of it. Life is long enough, and a sufficiently generous amount has been given to us for the highest achievements if it were all well invested. End quote. And books are a good use of time because they have this asymmetrical payoff. It's like not eating sugar or not eating meat, even if you Don't get any ideas out of a book when you read it the first time. There's a chance those ideas will click later in your life. Or you'll revisit a book and it'll have a totally different meaning. So books and sugar and not eating meat and exercise and even relationships. These are all things where the value, the potential is huge. Five. There's a lot of information in the world. We live in a time when information gets faster by the day, but but it's always gotten faster by the day. I remember reading the story of E.B. Sledgehammer. He wrote about uh, fighting in the Pacific Theater in World War II, and Sledgehammer recalls being on a on a train leaving I think I think Georgia on his way to California for. Marine Corps training and he says that, oh, he, he just wishes for the days when things were slower and more idyllic and, and the world didn't move so fast. And people have been saying this a long time. It, it's not like, you know, people in the 80s thought that the 60s were the same speed. No, people have always thought the world's been getting faster. But part of the consequences of the world getting faster is that sometimes it takes more work to dig deeply into an idea. We have to spend the time to get to the second level or deeper about information that's been given to us. Michael Mobison did a great podcast with the Financial Times. It was a summary of an article he wrote for Credit Suisse about 10 things he's learned for after 30 years in the investment management business. And his, uh, his second point that he spoke about uh, was about the, the value of cash flows and about the value of earnings season And this is what Mobison said about about, uh, seeing earnings for a company. Quote, there might be some information there, but you really do want to unpack that, end quote. That second level thinking, right right there, that quote is is second level thinking, is that there's a lot of statistics, there's a lot of information out there, there's a lot of noise, and we have to figure out how representative that noise is to the outcomes we really want to get into. So when we talk about part of the reason, thinking, that goes hand in hand with second level thinking because you want to say, well, well, okay, how much, how much of the reason is that thing? Is that like a big part of the reason or is that a small part of the reason or, or, or what exactly is that? And for Mobison, he's saying that, well, you can look at a company's earnings, but you really need to dig deeper than that. You have to understand how does a business make money? How is a business competitive? Does a business have a moat? Do they have a sustainable competitive advantage? What does that moat look like? Are there large margins? If there's large margins, that's like that's like blood in the water for a shark for someone like Jeff Bezos, who is who is quoted as saying, "Your margin is my opportunity. So we really want to get to second level thinking. I saw this in effect during Super Bowl week, which has recently wrapped up and There were a lot of news stories about the mean ticket price the average ticket price for the game and it was like several thousand dollars and that seems like a lot of money especially for one game but i guess it's if it's your team you're gonna spend it and it's a once in a lifetime opportunity and and there's all these narratives that go along with this there's all these stories but we have to ask well do the stories explain it and is that something worth explaining like does the mean ticket value, does the average ticket value actually tell us anything? Well, it's it's really complicated because it's not like a normal game where there's a lot of seats to buy. The NFL gets so many tickets. The home and host stadium gets so many tickets. Each team gets so many tickets. NFL players all have an opportunity to buy tickets. There's corporate tickets. There's sponsor tickets. There's all of these different tickets. So we don't actually... Know how many tickets are available, how many tickets are out there. Maybe in a stadium that seats 60,000 people, there's only 6,000 tickets, so it makes sense that there would be tickets selling for four or five thousand dollars. We also have to remember that averages can be very misleading if information has a power law distribution. The common example of this explanation goes like this Go to Seattle, Washington. Pick out a hundred people at random and line them up from shortest to tallest. Record their heights and graph it. And you'll have what we call a bell curve. You'll have a normal distribution of people. Then ask those same 100 people to line up from wealthiest to poorest. And by sure chance of luck, you happen to include Bill Gates in your sample. So, you have Bill Gates at the head of the line in Seattle, and you have a coffee barista at Starbucks at the end of your line. And you record their wealth, and then you graph it. And what you'll see is a power law distribution, where the wealthiest person, Bill Gates, has more wealth than the next 99 people combined. But, if you take the average of those wealths, you'll have something that is astronomical. You'll have a wealth of, you know, let's say $250 million per person. And that's in no way representative of the sample. And so when you hear a news story about how much Super Bowl tickets cost, you have to dig deeper than that. You have to get past this average because we don't know how many tickets are available. We don't know what the resale market has looked like. Does it matter that it was in Houston and not in New York? Does it matter? The teams that are playing. Does it matter how many tickets are available? There's a lot of information behind this simple statistic of average Super Bowl ticket price. And if you're really interested in something, if the equivalent of your life is car sales per year or unemployment or gross profit, you have to ask further details. You have to figure out the most important things that lead to that number. And then you can adjust those and play with those and preserve those and grow those things. Thanks for listening to this episode of Mike's Notes. If you have any feedback, be sure to let me know.